Almighty God, we pray that this word would go forward, Father, that that we would trust you more and more. And Lord, I do pray that, that the word that goes forward, that you would do a work within this time, that our hearts would be even more forever into your praise and glory. Lord, may our hearts and our affections and our lives be, be showing of that. We ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Eric Maddy. I, ser- I serve here as one of the members, but also a preacher and, and teacher occasionally, and get to be on a prayer ministry with my wife. I want to thank the elders for giving me the opportunity to preach the word this morning. I have one more song I want to put the lyrics up for at the beginning as a way of introduction. You know this song, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. You can go ahead and sing with me if you want. (laughs) This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Good job. (laughs) There is no other light for this dark world than Jesus Christ. So when we read in today's verses and are reminded by Paul of the first recorded words that actually created our history, Genesis 1-3, let there be light, that light was shown in the darkness, I hope that we can remember the powerful way that God shone his light into our dark hearts. Do you remember that time? Do you remember the way that Jesus was presented to you? whether it was through the preaching of God's word and, and the Holy Spirit had done a work for you to, to submit and, and receive the grace of Jesus Christ into your life. Maybe it was in reading. You were just reading the, the Bible and God opened up some words and, and the passage and it was new for you and it was alive. Maybe it was in a conversation, one-on-one with somebody where you realized that God was doing a work in your heart. Or maybe it was just a gradual shining. Maybe it was one of those things over years of you realizing that you're coming to this revelation and understanding of Jesus Christ. But what is happening in those moments is this, is that God's surpassing, powerful light unveiled our hearts to clearly comprehend Christ coming to earth, Christ cross where he died, Christ canceling your debt of sin, And Christ coming back to life so that you may be made new. That light. That light. That knowledge of the glory and majesty of God's divine being found in Jesus Christ alone. That light led you to become a follower of Jesus. A lover of Jesus. And you've put your hope for all eternity in the only one that can hold you for that long. You simply have received the kindness that God has offered all of us that is found exclusively in Jesus Christ. You know, the reason why we as believers can see is not because we're smart enough to figure it out. It's because God was merciful enough to us through his spirit to open our blind hearts and our darkened darkened minds. John Newton wrote, neither education endeavors nor arguments can open the eyes of the blind. 
It is God alone who first caused light to shine in dark, out of darkness, who can shine into our hearts. This gift of grace is something we possess, but it's not our own. You see, this little light of mine, it doesn't come from me. This light is a gift. It's gifted to us. It's not from me, nor is it. I don't make this thing shine. Jesus is the light of the world. And we are reminded of this metaphor every year when it comes to Christmas. And as his church, we are to let his light shine through us. So there is no other light for this dark world than Jesus Christ. Verse 5 in today's passage says, For what we proclaimed is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. You know, when I read that verse, I think to myself, Self? Why does Paul remind the Corinth of this? And the simple answer is this. The light of the gospel's work in Corinth was at risk. The work that he had founded was at risk. The work that God had done was at risk. We must remember when we read 2 Corinthians what is going on here. There is a year time span before 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So when we read this in our books, in our Bibles, it's not like 1 Corinthians is chapter 1 and then it's chapter 2. It's, it's not like that. It's, it's much more what's going on within that year between these letters. And now I'm not embarrassed to admit that when I took a Bible class back in 1996 at Bible school called Corinthian Letters, it shocked me what I learned. I learned that Paul had actually written four letters to the Corinthians. And in my young mind, I thought, what? <laughs> four letters? I thought, well, everything Paul writes is the Word of God. Shouldn't that all be in there? <laughs> well, obviously not. So I learned that there were these letters, A, B, C, and D, that they qualified. But out of that sequence, I learned that 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians were the letters B and D. And the only reason that we know that there are other letters is that they're mentioned in these canon books that we have today. So with all these letters going back and forth between Corinth and Paul, you realize that there's a lot going on here. So Pastor Dan left us last week with the mention of letter A and then preached on letter B, 1 Corinthians, which had much instruction, much godly counsel. We read 1 Corinthians with reverence and enjoyment to know that God is speaking to us. But when we pick up from the narrative here, 1 Corinthians had been given to the church of Corinth and the, the church got worse. The church actually worsened. Paul's instruction fell on deaf ears. Immorality was still happening. Factions were not disbanded. Sin was still rampant. You see, false teachers came in and taught a different Jesus, a different gospel. Therefore, they were actively opposing Paul and his associates in what they taught. The Corinthian church is one of the earliest examples of a people of God who were poised to not endure sound doctrine. They welcomed in Paul's absence teachers who would tell them what their selfish passions and desires were longing for. And in a culture like Corinth, that was dangerous. 
These teachers masqueraded their message in gospel and Jesus' language. They would tell them whatever the people's ears itched to hear. So you had these false teachers indoctrinating them, but then they had these false super apostles coming in who appeared in the church. They were self-appointed apostles who themselves were superior in their manner, in their speech, in their, in their theories. Paul even mockingly called them super apostles, ones who had visions, had been eloquent and bold in their preaching. And with all this going on, Paul, Paul realized he had to go to Corinth because his authority was still being in question and he couldn't work it out by just a simple letter. So he went there for what we know to be called the painful visit. And in this painful visit, it's exactly what happens to Paul that makes it painful. The very church that he started, the members rejected him. Others questioned his, his integrity because he'd been away for so long, he didn't come back as soon as he said he did. The believers in Corinth accused him of being nothing like his bold letters, and he was characterized as being unimpressive in person and unimpressive in speech. He was weak when he got there. They questioned his apostolic call because after all, Paul was going around preaching the church and he was being persecuted everywhere he was for the name of Jesus Christ. But what was told of him, they questioned his apostolic call because, well, Paul just suffers too much for God to be on his side. <laughs> One leading figure in the church stood up to Paul and resisted his authority. No effective action was taken for Paul's defense by either the leaders or the members of the church. So Paul stood alone. Paul left Corinth, although we don't exactly know the reason why. But nonetheless, the work of the gospel was at risk, and he wasn't going to sit back and let the situation slide. So he got back to Ephesus, and he penned what we now know as to be letter C, the tearful, severe letter, the, the rebuking letter. And he talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, if you read with me. And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. You know, if you're anything like me, when you hear about this third letter, this tear-stained letter, maybe you're thinking, what did Paul write? Unfortunately, history has, has lost this letter. But whatever Paul said, it was the catalyst that led to repentance to happen in the Corinthians. Look at me in chapter 7. He said, for even if I made you grieve with my letter... I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. God used this long-lost letter to work repentance into the hearts of the Corinthians. You know, personally, I would have thought that God would want to keep that. <laughs> But by God's providence, we don't have it. 
And obviously God used it. He was working in the heart of Paul, keeping that love there, not getting bitter. And he worked of something in the Corinthians to change their heart and to repent of their ways. I think that we can contend that it's not so much that we know exactly the words Paul said to achieve repentant results, but rather it's allowing the work of the Spirit to happen in the lives of those who are involved. When we have conflict and we have those things in which we need to talk to one another with, there's a time in which the Spirit and the Word has to work there. You know, and it's pretty humbling for people like us who, who love to talk things out. Maybe you're the one that says, no, 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 we're staying here to talk this out. We're staying right here. It's, it's humbling to do that because no matter how well we can reason and no matter how well we can mediate, we realize that God has to do an internal work in the other person, of course. <laughs> but then he does a work in us because we have to be patient. And then there's us who... Of course, we stew, and we're right, and we're not going to let this go. When there is that work of the Spirit, it leaves us to submit and to forgive. It's literally making the choice to get bitter or to get better. So the light of the gospel's work in Corinth was at risk. Now, as we open up this letter, 2 Corinthians, we realize that we understand that it's like reading someone's email with a person that they're in a fight with, but they're now trying to restore that relationship. Let me give you the 10-second context when we open up the book of 2 Corinthians. After a season of rebelling against Paul's ministry and teaching, repentance occurs among the Corinthians. And this letter assures them of Paul's apostolic calling, his care, and his character. If there was an outline for 2 Corinthians, it'd be something similar to this. Chapter 1 through 7, Paul is emphasizing his gospel campaign, his journeys, and his gospel ministry. Chapter 8, verse 9, I'm sorry, chapter 8 and 9, Paul is encouraging a generous collection for the Jerusalem church because that ministry still had to happen amongst all the churches to help the home church. And then chapter 10, verse 13, Paul is explaining and defending his genuine call and authority as an apostle because those who heard this letter, they were still false apostles. There were still false teachers amongst them. So he's saying to them, my authority as an apostle is genuine and I'm, I'm, we're going to have this talk. You know, I found it rather funny this week as I was doing my studies one Bible study note characterized 2 Corinthians as, and I quote, a personal letter filled with expressions of deep emotions, unquote. That, in my opinion, is an understatement. <laughs> we see Paul here at his most transparent and is biographically honest. It is an emotional letter. He, he goes from deep affection to, to sarcasm. He, he is not as organized in his thoughts when he is penning this letter. And because of these characteristics, there are some scholars who, who question 2 Corinthians' integrity and unity. But I'm here to tell you, for the record, we have nothing to worry about. The integrity and unity stands up against the critiques. I took some time to look at those critiques. They're subjective and weak at best. So, my opinion. <laughs> 
While 2 Corinthians is disorderly in arrangement, it is profoundly theological and practical in talking about many different things about our life as Christians. It talks about ministry of the gospel, suffering and glory, earthly and heavenly living, reconciliation and restoration and righteousness. And even for our purposes here at LEFC, as we are going through Route 66 and looking at the one major redemptive story through all of Scripture, we can see the one redemptive truth is this, that the gospel's glory and power are seen in human weakness. Let me explain. See, Paul is stating that we preach Christ and not ourselves. He's saying that to help the Corinthians reorientate themselves. Because they have to reorientate away from a Corinthian lifestyle to a Christ-centered lifestyle. The error of the false teachers and the example of, of these false prophets undoubtedly skewed how they thought the Christian life should look like. Pastor Dan mentioned it last week when he said the culture was bleeding into the church. And the way the culture was, it was affecting the way the church was. And we understand that in our own American way, don't we? We fight that same battle. We are not to be duped by counterfeit gospels that can bleed in from the ideals of the American dream. We see this today in the prosperity gospel. Those who hold this message believe that God can best be seen when people are healthy, wealthy, happy, comfortable, and successful. And they're absolutely fine at pointing to themselves as proof of all that. But in smaller ways, the evangelical church, reformed churches, Protestant churches can, can fall into legalistic and perfectionist mentalities within the body of Christ. And we too can deceive ourselves by those tentacles that we're forming a righteousness that's built around our lifestyle. Maybe something that we do well. Maybe we want to be super mom and super dad. We want to be able to balance our life. We want to be the best parents. We want to be in the best in shape for the glory of God. It's usually called something like this. You put that word and you put behind it righteousness. It's called parenting righteousness. It's called perfect living righteousness. It's called being in shape, righteousness. Financial stability, righteousness. Maybe we're tempted to be the perfect worker, or to be the perfect husband, or the perfect wife. We at times feel our witness has to have this mark, this mask, smile, and a perfect conduct in order to represent God well. My point is, is that we can slip into the belief that God can be seen best if we shine our, our light of conduct and character and strength and reputation perfectly and self-righteously. But Paul is telling us in Corinthians, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ our Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And then two verses down after that, he says this in verse 7. 
But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You see, the light of God's glory shines brightest in weak vessels. Paul is using word pictures here, saying that the glorious gospel is a treasure. It is a priceless gift that it is in thin, earthen-worn vessels. He's talking about us. He's talking about our bodies. He's talking about our broken human nature and our human bodies. We are to remember the culture of Paul's day. Jars of clay were not known to be beautiful or robust. They had little value and was insufficient to keep things safe. In fact, jars like this easily cracked and at times broke, much like we do. So in verse 7, Paul is saying that the insufficiency of man reveals the total sufficiency of God. And this revealing of the total sufficiency of God points to his character, his power, his greatness, his beauty, and his plan, and not ours. There are a lot of times we get this wrong in our reading and recounting of Scripture when we read the Bible and its heroes. When we read this Scripture, Jesus is the hero of this book. God's mighty work is what we're to see when we read the Bible. I'll give you just a couple of examples. The call of Israel's prophets had a similar pattern every time. Let's look at what that pattern is. First of all, the Lord has a divine encounter with someone. And then number two, God invited them into his work by commissioning them. Number three, the person objects due to some insufficiency or obstacle. And then number four, God reassures him with gracious and abundant promises of his presence or even a sign to overcome the obstacle. Let's look at the call of Moses, the most prominent prophet in the Old Testament. The divine encounter goes like this out of Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. When the Lord saw that he turned... Then down to verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see... God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And then the inviting commission, the Lord says in verse 7, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I take heart, I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. In verse 10, he says, come. I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But then here comes the obstacle. Here comes what it is. And it's what it is is insecurity. Moses says, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring out the children of Israel out of Egypt? But God reassures him, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have spoken sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And what's ironic is that from Moses, 
this pattern is reduplicated three times because he keeps giving the excuses of the different obstacles of why he can't do this. Yet the emphasis in the narrative is how God overcomes Moses' insufficiency by the promise of his sufficient presence. He even gives them the sign and the provision of a miracle-working rod. He even gives them Aaron to be his spokesperson. It's incredible that Moses, in certain circles and in certain uh, portrayals, he's always the hero. (laughs) But Moses, with his objections and weakness and insecurity, he is a thin jar of clay, weakened human being. Yet God, God's light shines brightest in human weakness as the deliverance of God's people is accomplished by God himself through Moses. Let's look at another prophet, Gideon, Judges chapter 6. The divine encounter is this. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Next comes the invitation in verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of the Midian. Do not I send you? And then here comes the obstacle. Here's the excuse. And he, Gideon, said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. But then God reassures him once again. The promise of God's promise and a sign of favor from the Lord The Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he, Gideon, said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. And the rest of the story for Gideon is that he goes and prepares a meal, comes back and offers it. And the angel of the Lord, the Lord himself there, puts the offering up in a flame, a sacrificial flame, and then he is gone, thus showing that he has favor from the Lord. I hope that you caught there the contrast of how God sees Gideon versus how Gideon saw himself. In God's eyes, Gideon is a mighty man of valor and strength who will strike the Midianites as one man. All this said to him, even though Gideon's family is the weakest and Gideon himself the youngest. God's light shines brightest in human weakness as God said he would give Gideon strength due to God's promise to be with him in his weakness. You get the idea, the pattern here. And that pattern you can go and look at the call of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and they're all the same. God is helping insufficiency with his sufficiency. The point is, each of these men were aware of their weakness and frailty to carry out the Lord's task. Yet the Lord's strength helps them accomplish what he's called them to. This truth that God's light shines brightest in human weakness also plays out through biblical history. 
Remember Abraham and Sarah? The, the father of, of the Jews, the father and mother of the Jews. He was going to create one great nation, the Israel nation, out of this couple who were infertile. And they weren't just in their 70s. They were not in their 80s. But Sarah, we believe, was around 90 when she had her first and only child. (laughs) In weakness, God helped. He fulfilled his purposes. That glorifies God. How about Israel's greatest king, David? David, a man after God's own heart, the youngest in the line of Jesse, a shepherd boy, called to be the king, but first he had to face Goliath. And when he tried on, he couldn't even wear the, the, the armor of a regular man's armor, but he knew that it was God himself that was going to deliver him, into the, into the, that God was to deliver Goliath into his hands. How about the lead apostle, Peter? Remember him? Peter with no formal religious background. Peter, who put his foot in his mouth every time we read about him. (laughs) A man of great passion that sometimes got out of control. A fisherman by trade. Yet Jesus called him to be a fisher of men and lead the fledging church. You know, when we sing all blessing and honor and glory and power and majesty be to Lord Jesus, our hearts should burn to proclaim that in our singing, not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is the Lord. Our hearts should have an affection for God that sings of God being our only hope, our only Savior, our only light and joy that we're to look through to, to trust in, and to make songs of celebrating about Him. So if God puts this valuable treasure in weakened vessels. If he puts this into our lives, why does he do this? goes right back to verse 7. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I like the way Pastor Trent Castell said it. He said this, God displays his glorious gospel through broken and cracked jars like us because in doing so, It is abundantly clear that the power at work within us is not ours, but His. This is humbling, you know. You know why? I mean, I have my own reasons. But I would think that for some of us, we struggle with weakness. Sometimes we despise our weakness. But you know what? God doesn't. Remember, he chose you. And in choosing, he manifests his power in us and through us. In choosing you, he is manifesting his power in you and through you. His power, not yours. Remember, 1 Corinthians says this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring things, to bring nothing, 
Bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You might be wrestling in your heart this morning. Wouldn't it just be better if God magnified his greatness through our greatness? (laughs) Well, if we're talking about our greatness, then whose light are we shining? The fact is that there are times God does call and save the strong, the intellect, those who are successful, those who don't have a lot of suffering, that they do have talents that no matter where they go in the circles, that they are the ones that stand out there. And by the world standard, they are not the weak things, but they are the attractive things that the world talks about. God does save them by his grace. But even the most renowned brother and sister in Christ, the most celebrated Christian, cannot compare with the gospel treasure of Jesus Christ. Compared to the glory of the gospel, the best of us are still jars of clay. Well, how do I take this home for us? A couple of applications for us. First off, I'd say the first application point is for us to adopt the biblical reality, the, the truth, okay? The biblical reality that we must see our identity as divine by Christ, not culture. Number two, the second application point is for us to realize that if we are to shine the light of Jesus, we best do it in a manner that is honest about our need and his strength. I hope you catch that. That when we witness to people, we talk about our need for Jesus and his saving power to save us. You don't have to be ashamed of your weakness. And if you are paralyzed this morning because you are so worried about it that you're not sure about your life, you don't need to be ashamed of it. Put off pretensions. Put off self-righteousness. Take down the masks. No one is perfect. And it's best to embrace that about yourself as well, no matter how wonderful you are. (laughs) There are times at my work, I've been at my work for over 20 years, and I work side by side with people day in and day out, eight hours, 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day at times. And they see my mistakes. Even in moments, they see my sin. But on more one occasion, maybe someone has offered me a little bit of grace when I'm feeling bad about a mistake I make, and they give me that benefit of the doubt. Oftentimes in that conversation, I can say something and have said this, well, I screwed up. I'm not perfect. I know my need for Jesus. And he'll help me next time and forgive me this time. You know, you honor God when we behave in humble ways that acknowledge him. The third application I would say is, when we are weak, do not lose heart. Christ is our strength. We can have confidence that Jesus will be working his power and strength in us. And how do we know that? The next verse that we have yet to even talk about in chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. 
We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Paul's and ours confidence is not that he can suffer well. Paul's confidence and our confidence is in the one who suffered for us. In accomplishing our salvation, Jesus did it primarily through weakness. In fact, he took it to the extreme because Jesus was afflicted and crushed. Jesus was perplexed and driven to despair in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was persecuted and forsaken on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was struck down and destroyed in death. You know, these are the things we deserve before Christ came. And when Christ came along, and by God's grace, he took what we deserved and placed it to Jesus on the cross. Jesus became sin in our place and took what our sins deserve. And in the midst of the greatest weakness, that is death itself, God's power shone true and brought Christ back to life. And he's alive and well today. Today we share in Christ's death and in his life. Those who have trusted Jesus share in his suffering and share in the comforts that flow from what his suffering accomplished for us. It is this comfort and this power that sustains us to not lose heart and to have the confidence that when we see 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, we can believe it. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Let's pray. Mighty Savior, God with us, Christ here and now, be our all in all. Come, Spirit, and rest the hearts of your children. Comfort the minds of the anxious. Strengthen the weary, for your mercy is new for today. And it's new again tomorrow. Help us drop the perspective that our strength is sufficient. And may we find true strength while we are weak and you are strong for us. And to shine your glory through that avenue anyway. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's children said, Amen.